Good, good morning. Can everybody hear me? <clears throat> check, check. Testing one, two, three. <clears throat> there I am. Good? Okay. All right. So, uh, as Leah said, we're continuing in our Ephesians series today, and we're actually getting close to the end. I think. Next week, we're going to finish up. This is week 10. But before we finish, we've got a passage that I would say it's the kind of passage that can raise some eyebrows uh, for those of us today with our modern sensibilities. It might raise some concerns. And so I think it's important for us to, to look at it, uh, to address the uh, concerns that we may have, and to ask, what is God saying to us uh, through these words? So... If you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5, starting where we left off in verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to come together around your word and your table. And Lord, we just invite your spirit to work in our hearts and minds right now. Help us to turn our attention to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. All right. Let's imagine a scenario 
A friend comes up to you and says, I have a special message for you. And then she begins to sing a song. And it's a song that's familiar to both of you. You've heard this song a million times before. But what she does is she changes some of the lyrics. And she adds some new lines to the song. And then she walks away. And then you're left thinking about what this message was that she gave to you. Now, do you think it would be wise, if you want to understand her, to focus on the old lyrics or on the new ones? <laughs> okay, I'm seeing a hand held up with two, so new. Yeah, it would make sense to focus on the new ones, the things that she changed, because there would be where the real point of the message would lie, right? And that's kind of how I want you to think about this passage. It is a new take on an old song. In the first century Roman Empire, masters were expected to rule over their slaves, and husbands were expected to rule over their wives. In fact, in those days, the head of the household was called the paterfamilias, and the paterfamilias had total authority over the members of his household. He owned the property. He made the decisions. Uh, he could even sentence the people in his house to death. And most of the time, he could get away with that. If he wanted to kill his own kids, that was allowed by the state. Now, it wasn't until the fourth century AD that that law was forbidden by the Roman government. So that means that was not forbidden until about 300 years after Ephesians was written. The paterfamilias could also sell his children into slavery if he wanted to do that. That was his right. So take that in for a moment. <laughs> That's the world that Paul was writing in. Now, over 300 years before Paul wrote these words, a man named Aristotle, who you've probably heard of, um, he set down some rules that should govern the Roman households. And it was called a household code. And basically, those rules described the setup with the paterfamilias, as the, the head male of the household having all this power, authority over his wife or wives, and complete authority over his children and his slaves. And in those 300 years between Aristotle and the writing of Ephesians, there were many other household codes that were produced that basically riffed off of what Aristotle had written. And they all were affirming this idea of the paterfamilias, the head male of the household, having this complete and total authority, which is good and right. And so what Paul does here is he borrows from an old song and he changes the lyrics of that song. And the changes are where the heart of what Paul is saying is revealed to us. See, we hear this today and we hear Paul emphasizing hierarchy and authority, hierarchy and authority, right? But that's the old song that he's riffing off of. If we're able to hear this the way the Ephesians would have heard it, we would have heard an old song with changed lyrics that is guiding us towards love and mutuality in our relationships 
rather than hierarchy and authority. So why do I say that? Well, oh, sorry, I got off on the slides here. Why do I say that? Let's go back to the top of the passage. So how does this whole section begin? It begins with Paul saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that first line is radically countercultural. Okay? He begins the whole section not with wives, submit to your husbands, not with slaves, submit to your masters, but everyone, submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. So whatever is meant by that word submit, it can't be something that only women are supposed to do or only slaves are supposed to do. It is something that Christians in general are supposed to do. That line is the umbrella that hangs over all these following instructions. So what exactly is meant by the word submit? Well, for one thing, it's not quite the same as obey. Paul does use obey a couple times uh, in this passage, but when he uses the word submit, he's using a different word. Um, so when you hear submit, you don't want to hear something like, do what you're told. You want to hear something like uh, serve, honor, and respect. Serve, honor, and respect. Now what we need to realize is that even when Paul talks to the wives about submitting, he is already being countercultural for two reasons. Uh, one, because in those days the household codes did not address the wives. It didn't even speak to them. It spoke to the husbands. And as you'll, you see here, um, Paul doesn't tell the husbands, make your wives submit. That would be the normal thing for the code to say. Husbands, rule over your wives. No, instead he addresses the wives and he says, submit yourselves. He doesn't say anything to the husband about make your wife submit. Right? Instead, he says to the husbands, uh, that they should give of themselves as Christ did to the church, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So right there, that is where, to use the analogy from earlier, the old song is changed. And there's some new lyrics, new surprising lyrics. Household codes did not tell husbands to love their wives, and they certainly didn't tell them to love them with the kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated through the cross. So this is a radically different vision of how to live than what people in the Roman Empire were used to. Now before we talk any more about the relationship between husbands and wives, I want to clarify a couple things. So, Paul makes an analogy, right? He says you want to think of the relationship between Christ and the church, and that mirrors something of what the relationship between a husband and wife should be like. But here's something that's important to recognize. He's not suggesting through this analogy that these relationships are exactly the same. And we got to be careful about what aspects of these relationships we emphasize, okay? With every analogy, there are things about the analogy that are the same and things that are different. There is an, you know, an as and not as relationship with every analogy. So it's important to clarify, 
Paul is not saying that wives should worship their husbands to see their worship their, their husbands as equal to God, right? That would be idolatry. And he's not saying husbands should see themselves as saving their wives from their sins. Yes, he does say that Jesus did that, right? When he, Jesus gave his, his life uh, for the church, he was saving us from our sins. But he's not saying that husbands actually save their wives from their sins by loving them, okay? Um, that would be wrong too, because we know that only Christ can atone for our sins, right? And if that were true, then single women wouldn't have a chance of going to heaven, right? And we know that that certainly is not the case. Uh, in fact, I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about, about singleness. Um, singleness, according to the Bible, is not a bad thing. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians, another letter written by Paul, uh, you know, Paul was single, and Paul said to the Corinthians, I wish you all were like I was, but, you know, if you want to get married, you're not sinning. So he almost presents marriage as like this concession. And that's very important to recognize because, again, that was very countercultural too. In the Roman Empire, if you weren't married and you didn't have kids, you had not fulfilled your purpose in life. You had failed. You were a nobody. But then this early Christian movement starts saying, no, you can be fully alive and fully human as God intended, even if you are single and celibate your entire life. The church presented a totally different vision of what it means to be fully alive and human and where our identity and value should lie. So if you are single this morning, don't take Paul's instructions to husbands and wives as some sign that, you know, you haven't fulfilled uh, your purpose. That's not the case at all. Paul is addressing people who are married and saying, hey, here's the way you should think about your relationship. But he's not saying, oh, if you're single, then you have to be a married person. So, very important for us to, to understand that. So, Paul uses this analogy of Christ and the church and husbands and wives. So in what way is the relationship between a husband and a wife supposed to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church? Well, in two ways. Wives are supposed to serve, honor, and respect their husbands just as the church does Christ. And husbands are supposed to love their wives with a sacrificial, Jesus-like love. And I think when you really get to the heart of both of those commands, what the husband and wife are being asked to do is basically the same. What they are being asked to do is to serve the needs and concerns of the other. That might not be quite as obvious with the husbands as with the wives, but when you think about it, when Christ died on the cross and gave his life, was he doing that? in order to save himself? No. He was doing it because of the needs and concerns of the church, of the people who he loves, right? He laid down his life, he laid down his self-interest, he humbled himself, and he gave sacrificially. So both husbands and wives are being told, serve the needs and concerns of the other. Now over the years, I've heard a lot of people 
talk about this passage. And some people really try to emphasize, here is what this passage teaches. It teaches that if a husband and a wife ever disagree about something, then the husband's will should win out. Because he's the head. But when you think about it, you could just, e just as easily argue that if a husband and a, and a wife have a disagreement, that the wife's will should win out because the husband is called to completely sacrifice himself like Jesus did, right? That's an incredible bar of self-sacrifice. So here's what I would say. I don't think this passage teaches that a husband's will should always win out. And I don't think it teaches that a wife's will should always win out. What it's telling us is that husbands and wives should care deeply about their partner's interests. That's the main message here. As Paul points out, a husband and a wife are one. Right? He, he compares the husband to a head and the wife to a body. If a body hurts, the head on top of it is not going to be happy. Right? The head's interests cannot be separated from the body's interests. So when Paul says that the husband is the head, that doesn't mean that the wife's interests don't matter, right? The head cannot ignore the body's interests. They are one. If one is in pain, the other is in pain. If one's needs are not being met, the other one's needs aren't being met. You know, and if you are married and you're not a sociopath, you know this, right? <laughs> You know that if you get your way, but your spouse is really unhappy about it, it's going to be hard to enjoy it and live in the, same, in the same place, right? It doesn't work. Because you're one. So we're still left with the question, okay, when a husband and a wife come to a disagreement, who's supposed to win out? How's that supposed to be resolved, right? What if uh, a husband wants to buy one house and a wife wants to buy another? What if the wife wants to move to a city, but the husband wants to stay in the country? Uh, what if the husband wants two kids, but the wife wants four? What if the husband wants to take a vacation, but the wife wants to buy a living room set with that money? What is the biblical thing to do in those situations? Well, here's the thing. If I say, in those situations, the husband should always yield his will, then the wife never has an opportunity to submit. And if I say that the wife should always yield her will, then the husband never gets an opportunity to lay down his interests as Christ did for the church. So I'm not going to say either. Right? In each situation, the husband and, a and the wife need to deal with that situation as partners. They have to work through it. There's just no magical formula for these things. But if two people are loving one another as themselves, and they are seeking to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church in the way that they live, the Holy Spirit is going to work and I believe will provide a resolution.
In some cases, the husband may have to yield his will more than the wife. In some cases, the wife may have to yield her will more than the husband. In some cases, they'll both kind of say, well, we just don't know what to do. And eventually, an option will arise where neither of them feels like they have to yield their will. I know that for Sarah and I, and it was kind of like that when we were looking for a place to live after we got married, we looked at a lot of places. Uh, some of the places I liked, she didn't. Some of the places she liked, and I didn't. And with one of the places that I liked, you know, it was a good deal. And I was thinking, I don't know if we're going to find a deal this good. And Sarah didn't like it, but she said, I will live there um, if, 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 you know, if you think it's, it's best. I, I, can, I can learn to be happy there. But I knew deep down, that's not where she wants to be. So we, didn't, we just waited. And then what do you know? A place showed up where both of us, no hesitation, were like, yeah, that's where we want to be. But if at any point there I had just been like, well, I'm, I'm, you have to yield to me. You have to submit to me. Well, we wouldn't have ended up with this really nice solution. And it probably would have caused a rift in our relationship. In our marriages, we shouldn't be asking, who's required to give in to the other? Right? We should be asking, how can we love each other? How can we serve each other? Okay, let's move on to the second part about parents and kids. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, of course, the idea that children should obey their parents is nothing new would not be unusual for a, a, a household code. And Paul seems to go out of his way to emphasize this is a good and godly thing. I mean, you can find support for it in the Ten Commandments. And he points out this is the first commandment that comes with a promise. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Generally speaking, children should obey their parents. And you know, there's something that's implied in that that we should notice, which is parents have a responsibility to direct their kids. I doubt that's news to any of you, uh, but no child comes into this world knowing everything. Um, human beings can't just operate on instinct the way that animals do, right? We need to be taught. We need to be taught the difference between right and wrong. We need to be taught how to manage our emotions. That just doesn't come through instinct. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, this is where that old saying comes from, spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people take this proverb and they think that it's all about corporal punishment, right? They think that it's all about any good parent is going to hit their kids with a rod. But 
I don't think that's what this proverb is saying because Psalm 23 also uses the same word for rod. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? This is the psalm that compares the Lord to a good shepherd. The rod was a tool that the shepherd would use to guide and direct the sheep. It wasn't for smacking the sheep, right? If it was, why would, why would the psalmist say, oh, your rod, it comforts me, right? So the point of this proverb is not hit your children. The point is your children need direction. They need guidance, just like sheep need direction and guidance from the shepherd. And if you don't give them that direction and guidance, you're not being loving to them. You know, one way today that we might spare the rod with our kids is if we just, like, give them access to the Internet, no parental controls, no monitoring, nothing like that. I mean, that's just like throwing them in the middle of Times Square in the 70s. <laughs> that's sparing the rod. It's not loving. It's not, it's not good, right? Kids need instructions, they need directions, they need healthy boundaries and somebody to enforce them, right? Now, the part about obeying parents, pretty in line with what household codes of the time would say, but then Paul says something that would really stand out to people then. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Okay? In a culture where the paterfamilias is supposed to have total authority, He's speaking directly to, to fathers and saying, don't exasperate your kids. In other words, don't make them needlessly angry. Don't be domineering with them. Don't crush their spirit. You know, a child might get exasperated because her parents' rules aren't clearly communicated or consistently enforced. A child might get exasperated because she's not allowed a level of independence that's appropriate to her age and maturity. A child might get exasperated because she's not allowed to study what she's actually interested in in school or something like that. You know, parents have to let their children become who God is calling them to be, even if they had other plans for them. Guide and discipline them, yes, but as far as you are able, don't exasperate them. Okay, so finally, we come to the part about slaves. Now I know, as people living in a time where we recognize uh, owning other human beings as wrong... It's hard to hear the Bible telling slaves to submit to their masters, right? We want Paul to be like, slaves, run away from your masters, or masters, release your slaves, right? That's, that's what we want to hear. But again, we have got to remember the world that Paul was writing in. Uh, one of the, the great biblical scholars of our time, N.T. Wright, he says, it would have been as hard for Paul to imagine a world without slavery as it is for us to imagine a world without electricity. It was just 
baked into the social, political, economic order of the time. In fact, 20 to 30 percent of the population at any time in the Roman Empire would have been slaves. And a lot of the people who were not slaves at any, any given time had been slaves at some point because people wanted slaves when they were you know, most physically fit. So a lot of the time, even once they got to their 30s or so, they would let them go. So a lot of the people who weren't slaves still would have been slaves at some point. So 20 to 30% now, I don't know what percentage would have been in the past, but we're talking a lot of people having been slaves at some point. So if Paul is going to address how people should live, how Christian households should function, he's got to address the slave-master relationship. He's got to do it. And while those of us living in the 21st century might have wished he had just said, no more slavery, we need to recognize that what he did say was a radical change to the old song. Radical change to the lyrics, and that's where the main part of his message lies. In fact, I would say that what he wrote here actually planted the seeds for the undoing of slavery. Aristotle, the same guy who wrote the first household code there, he said, slaves lack the deliberative faculty. In other words, he assumed that people who became slaves were people who needed other people to think for them. They couldn't do it on their own, so it was good for them to be enslaved. But notice, Paul doesn't say anything like that, right? He doesn't say, masters, remember that your slaves are less human than you are. He says the opposite, right? He says, do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. In other words, Treat your slaves well because in God's eyes, the slaves are equal to you. God doesn't play favorites between the two of you. Now we today say, well, yeah, of course, but in the first century Roman world, that was a radical statement. Now, yes, uh, Paul does tell slaves to obey their masters. He speaks to them in the situation that they're in. And he says, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now, fear there, if you look at the word, it doesn't really mean like terror, but it means reverence, okay? Reverence and respect. And he encourages them to think of the work that they're doing, not just as work for their masters, but as work for Christ. Not because he's saying that their masters are somehow equal to Christ, but because he wants them to bring joy to their work, right? where they see themselves, I'm not just serving this master who I may or may not like, but I am trying to serve as I would my Lord. Because, Paul says, you should recognize that every good thing that you do, you will one day receive a reward for. So if you serve your master well with the right spirit, the right attitude, you will eventually be rewarded for that one day. Now notice verse 9 again. So after Paul finishes saying, slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear, serve wholeheartedly, what does he say? Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Treat your slaves in the same way. What? 
Treat them with respect. Serve them as well. Recognize that in God's eyes, they are the same as you. Right? Talk about changing the lyrics to the old song. That is a huge change. Now, thankfully, we don't have master-slave relationships today, but I do think it's appropriate to apply this same advice to employee-employer relationships today, right? Employees, obey your employers with, with respect and serve them with sincerity of heart, wholeheartedly, not only when their eye is on you, but uh, even when they're not looking, and try to serve them as if you were serving the Lord. And, and also, employers, treat your employees the same way. Don't be harsh with them. Don't mistreat them when they're not looking or talk bad about them behind their back. Recognize that God loves you both. You know, how much nicer would our workplaces be if both employers and employees had this attitude in the way that they treated each other? I think we'd all be happier, we'd be more productive, probably have better pay and benefits, too. If you are currently in a work situation where you're being mistreated, my advice to you would be read what Paul says to slaves and say, all right, I'm really going to give it a go here. <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to put this in, in, into practice. Even though I'm angry at my boss, even though I feel like I am overworked and underpaid and mistreated, I'm going to try to serve my boss as if I was serving the Lord, and we'll see how that goes. And obviously, after a certain amount of time, if you're just being completely mistreated, I would say, eh, probably time to look for another job, okay? Because at some point, your employer should do their part, right? And follow the kinds of instructions that Paul gives here. But before you just check out in frustration, really give it a go to follow what Paul is saying here and be the one that initiates the Christ-likeness. All right. Well, let's finish by going back to the start. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Over the years, I've heard a lot of people talk about this passage, a lot of Christians. I've heard a lot of Christians say that this passage is all, all about how important hierarchy is in our relationships, especially men having uh, authority over women. But I believe if you really understand this passage in its context, look at it closely, it's not encouraging us to be the kind of people who ask, who's in charge? It's telling us to be the kind of people who say, how can I serve? How can I serve my wife? How can I serve my husband? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve my parents? How can I serve my, my employees, my employer? And if we read the passage with that attitude of who's in charge, I gotta figure out who's in charge, we're missing the real point. The big idea, love one another. Whatever social structure you find yourself in, whatever culture, whether you are at the top of the pecking order or the bottom, care about the needs and concerns of the other. Lord, um, this is a tough passage, and I pray that as we continue to reflect on it and ask what it means for us, what kind of sacrifices we might need to make, 
Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us in understanding and in, in application. Lord, help us to be willing to be challenged by it. And Lord, I pray that we really would reflect the relationship between you and the church in the way that we treat one another. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, people in the world would take notice that there is something special going on, that your spirit is at work, and they might turn and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.